So police reform is is definitely not a step towards reaching that better place, right? Police reform at its absolute best is a way of making the current crisis just a little less deadly and miserable for people. That's the best possible reading of what police reform will do. It accepts all the things that are terrible about America, but says we're just going to try to kill a fewer number of black people each year. Right, right. The problem is, is that even that isn't going to happen. Mm. Right? These reforms don't work. Right. So, so if they did work, you still wouldn't get much relief, but they don't actually work. So there's no evidence that says that any of these reforms are going to actually make any meaningful difference. Hey, loved ones, welcome to Naked Conversations, a space for you and I to meditate, strategize, and dream of the tools needed to transform into radical selves. I'm your host, Martisa Williams, free being, radical wayshore, and liberation doula. My purpose is to support the collective on our journey to deeper joy, sweeter justice, and fulfilling presence. So are you ready to step into your most liberated life yet? Let's get to it. So I'm collaborating with my longtime friend, Liz Wilsey, this October. So I've asked her to come on so we can talk to you about what we've got coming up. So I'm excited for this offering because it's a chance to work together and experiment for 30 days. You and I talk about stories like all the time, but I think an illustration for folks may be helpful. Yeah, so here's my example from a couple weeks ago. A dear friend and I were talking about organizing and in the middle, I started to feel like they were quizzing me, like there was a right or a wrong answer. And a past Liz would have gotten increasingly annoyed and probably lashed out. But I was able to say, it feels like I'm being quizzed, which let my friend say, oh yeah, that's not what I meant. And we got to talk about it. The whole thing was maybe done in two minutes and we were able to move forward with a better understanding. These kind of misunderstandings happen all the time, at home, in work, in organizing, and too often, instead of stopping and checking in, we just let it go. Then we're in our own story about what's happening. It may be real life or it may not. Right, and the only way to know is to check in with another person but we don't check in sometimes because we're afraid and sometimes because we just don't know how. So here comes connect and communicate. So we're inviting you to a 30 day nervous system experiment where you get to learn through experience and practice to be more honest and vulnerable in the ways you communicate. So I've done 30 day programs that left me drained. Our goal with this one is to give you ways to engage that are mindful of your capacity. 
and we call this an experiment. So it's easier to let go of what you already know and imagine what could be possible. So we're gonna have some fun. We're gonna support one another and be mindful of our own capacity. So signups close on September 19th and so that we can have time to pair you meaningfully with someone to be in practice with if you choose. You can visit the link in the show notes and join us. Hello, 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 my friends. Happy Thursday. Welcome back to another episode of the Naked Conversations. I don't have a whole lot to say today. I've just been staying, trying to stay deeply present um, and practicing what that looks like for me on a moment-to-moment, day-to-day basis. And I think it's deeply fruitful because being in the moment allows me to make decisions about how I want to be in the world, what moods I wanna have, what energies I wanna move through, what conversations, what things I wanna do. And having that presence practice allows me to stay in my full sovereignty and making sure that I can choose, I can exercise my right to choose. And that has felt empowering, Yeah, I will say it has been feeling empowering. Yeah, so that's all I have today. The world has been feeling full of grief for me these days and for many of us and confusion and uh, anticipation in ways that I don't quite know how to articulate and to process yet. Um, So if you are feeling any way like me where you're just like spinning in that energy i hope that you're taking deep care of yourself and doing what you can to take deep deep care of the community around you but let's get into today's episode today we are talking with alex vitali alex is a professor of psychology and coordinator of the policing and social justice project at brooklyn college and a visiting professor at london south bank university he has spent the last 30 years writing about policing and consults both police departments and human rights organizations internationally vitali is the author of city of disorder and the end of policing and has had many academic writings in many places like the New York Times and Washington Post, The Guardian, The Nation, Vice News, Fortune, and USA Today. And has appeared on CNN, MSNBC, CNBC, NPR, PBS, Democracy Now!, and The Daily Show. And today we got to have a conversation about Alex's upbringing, the history of policing, how the structure of our economy plays a role in how we police today. We talk about the resources that are needed and how police abolition can help. And we talk about how this really is a bipartisan issue um, and the path to the solution, getting offline and building community, and how white folks can navigate getting their hands dirty in this work that affects us all. So this is a nice, short, sweet conversation with Alex Vitale, and I hope you enjoy it. I will see you on the other side. 
Hi, thanks so much for coming on. You bet. Oh, well, the first question I ask all my guests is what made you you? Yeah, that's like the toughest question to start with, right? Oh yeah, oh for sure. <laughs> Calls for a lot of uh, personal introspection. So, uh, you know, I've been doing this this work a long time and this is kind of, in a way, this is where I always thought I might end up is sort of straddling this world of research and reading and big ideas on the one hand and, you know, trying to, you know, engage in the work of social change and working closely with folks on the ground. Uh, I came from a fairly political family. You know, my father was an elected official. Uh, they were involved in, you know, racial justice work in the 60s in Houston, where I grew up. So I grew up in a mixed race community in, in the south side of Houston. Um, and so questions of racial and economic justice, I'm like a fourth generation unionist on my father's side of the family. The Vitalis were all coal miners in Southern Illinois. Uh, so I didn't grow up in that milieu, but we spent a lot of time there visiting. And, and I knew a lot of those guys who, who grew up in the coal mines, you know, essentially and, and family members who were all active unionists. So these questions were always like looming large for me. And I was just trying to find like a home to, to do that work, if you will. Yeah, that's interesting. I always find it um, really, I mean, it's so, it feels like so few and far between the white families or white people that have like ancestry and like generations of doing uh, freedom work. Mm -hmm. um, I always think it's very, very interesting. So I was, it's funny because I was going to ask you, like, was your position of, you know, abolishing police, believing against policing, at least your thought patterns about policing, was it anti the political stance of your family or is it no, still, yeah. time, like, it's just a pr um, progression of it? No, my family is is pretty supportive. Uh, I think some of my siblings more than others, but uh, my father's deceased, but my my mom remains very politically active and and uh, you know is a source of advice on like direct action planning and civil disobedience and things like that. So no, this was not teenage rebellion against family values. This was uh, just, just kind of an extension and and really professionalization almost of some of these ideas. That's incredible. That's so cool to hear. That's so cool to hear. So you have written multiple books on policing. Um, and I'm really kind of interested if maybe we can start from a historical standpoint of like, can you take us through the last, I think you say like 40 years of history and like talk about the precedent of like why a policing should be abolished? Can we kind of move through that and it can take sure. as long or as short as you, as you need? So, you know, part of the story is this 40 year intensification of policing, but that's layered on top of this 200 year history of police as we conventionally think of them. And then even that is layered over a longer sort of 
400 year history of the of, of US colonialism, slavery, the so social control. So um, let's, let's, if you don't mind, maybe I'll start with the like 200 year piece of it. Yeah. We'll do 200 years in three minutes. Now, I love that. <laughs> and, then, and then talk about how that relates to the current moment. So I argue in the book that uh, it's really important to understand the historical origins of policing if we want to understand their functional nature. And we hear a lot in kind of social movement circles, Black Lives Matter circles about, well, police are an extension of slave patrols. And there's obviously some truth to that, but that's really only one part of the equation, that, that policing exists all over the world in a lot of places that never had slavery. But what, they, what these places share is that policing develops in relationship to support regimes of exploitation. And mm. slavery was just one of them, but it includes things like colonialism. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of development of, of really abusive, racist, colonial policing that has no ties to slavery. Mm. And this is, this is even true in the United States where we had forces like the Texas Rangers. The Texas Rangers were created to drive out first indigenous populations and then to drive out Mexican populations to make way for white settlement. So this was classic colonial policing uh, that, uh, you know, shaped the way a lot of Western, Southwestern police forces look today. The Texas Rangers still exist. And even up until the 1970s, they were enforcing a system of Juan Crow, especially in Southern Texas, that looked a lot like Jim Crow. Mm. Latinos were not allowed to vote were not allowed to use public educate, you know, there was segregated education. They were not allowed to form labor unions. They were not allowed to use public facilities. You know, there were separate drinking fountains and separate bathrooms and all this stuff. And if Latinos tried to register to vote or form a union, the Texas Rangers would be called in to suppress those movements, including acts of atrocities, lynchings, mass killings. Mm, mm -hmm. Right. So that's another part of the story. And then the third major thing that we see uh, is the relationship to industrial capitalism, right? The early 1800s is the emergence of kind of widespread industrialization, the making of an industrial working class, often involving the management of the influx of huge new populations in the cities whether it's people displaced from agriculture in England or mass European migration into the United States. So police forces in Chicago and New York and Boston don't really have direct ties to colonialism or slavery. They're, they're, they're indirect ties, which I can talk about, but, but basically they're to manage this new immigrant working class population to make sure they don't form radical labor unions to make sure that they they don't become drunk and disorderly on the streets so that they can go to work the next day they enforce dress codes on the streets uh, religious serve you know it's a whole huge range of things that we don't normally think of as the law that are designed to fabricate in the words of my friend mark neoclos uh fabricate a working class mm. 
And then you see there's interchange, right? So the first state police force, the Pennsylvania State Police Force, which was created to suppress union organizing in the coal and iron fields was based on the Philippine colonial police that the US ran in the 19, early 1900s. So there's often this interchange of ideas going on. So, but today, to, to get back to this 40, 50 year question, you know, today we don't have slavery and colonialism in these same ways. We barely have industrialization, right? What we have is this kind of neoliberal austerity politics. Define There's, neoliberal for me. Yeah, because... so it, it's a situation where we have deregulated the economy and we actively subsidize the already most successful parts of the economy in hopes that their success will kind of trickle down to the rest of us. So we give Amazon tax breaks. So General Electric pays no taxes at the federal level, no matter, seems like no matter what profits they make, they, they never seem to ever pay any taxes because they promise to create jobs or something like that. Right. And this is supposed to trickle down to the rest of us but it hasn't trickled down. What it's produced is mass homelessness, mass untreated mental health and substance abuse problems, failed schools, mass economic precarity that drives people into black markets of drugs and sex work and stolen goods. And then we use police to manage that. Right. They don't solve any of those problems, but they kind of keep a lid on it so that that system of massive inequality can kind of keep chugging along. And, and if you look at what police actually do every day, which, which I've been doing for 30 years, right? They're not chasing bank robbers. They're not finding hidden serial killers. They're not really protecting women from rapists or domestic violence. They're, they're chasing homeless people. They're shooing kids off the street corner. They're dealing to people having a mental health crisis. They're patrolling school hallways. You know, that's what they actually do is the management of these social problems. Mm. And that's really the problem, right? Is that we've turned every social problem under the sun over to the police to manage. And the people who've decided to do that are the people who are actually responsible for creating those social problems in the first place. Yeah. Can you, and I'm gonna push a little bit just because I think being a young millennial who lives in the social media age, unfortunately, many of us get our information from social media. The issue with that is that there's, it's brief, often it's not fact-checked and there isn't like, a, there isn't like sources we can go back to, right? Um, so I want to push a little bit just so that we can, like, there's questions that I think need answers. When you say that, like, these big companies like Amazon, um, General Electric, they are creating these social problems. Can you explain to me what you mean by that? I don't doubt you, yeah, but I'm sure, interested sure. in the specificity there. So, so let's look at, like, New York City. So in the, in the 1940s and 50s, New York had a lot of economic diversity which is to say that the, the economy involved manufacturing, shipping, finance, corporate, show business. In, this, in the face of global competition, city leaders basically made the decision to go with high finance at the expense mm. of pretty much everything else. And as a result of that, 
there are no more union jobs in New York except in government service. There's no manufacturing. There's no real pathway into the middle class for someone with just a high school diploma. Right. And that was not true 50 years ago. That was not true. Instead, what we have is a very small number of people who are connected to that world of high finance who make the most extravagant salaries imaginable, right? There are people who are making more than a million dollars a month as their base salary, right? right? Or $100,000 a month. A lot of people in that category in New York City. But everyone else is working in the service economy, doing their cleaning and cooking and entertaining, right? And they're all making minimum wage right? or a little bit above a minimum wage. And the housing market is distorted by all these billionaires, mm. buy these penthouses and don't live in them. Their investment properties, like huge swaths of Manhattan are kind of empty because mm -hmm. it's all just speculative investment. And that then drives people out. That causes gentrification. It causes homelessness. And we have this huge mismatch between what you can make in wages and what it costs to live here. And this produces poverty and homelessness, et cetera. So that drives economic precarity. That, and at the same time, sorry, city government is always going around saying it's bankrupt. Mm. It can't afford to provide any services because it's using everything it has to subsidize these already very successful people. So they're actually throwing money at Wall Street. Mm, mm -hmm. These billionaires are getting tax breaks. You got people building luxury houses in Tribeca in, in tax-free zones. Mm -hmm. So they're not paying any property taxes. Mm -hmm. you know? So the whole thing is totally perverse and it's producing all this inequality. And then instead of addressing the inequality, we use police to stamp it down. Oh, Lord. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, damn, it's really crazy. Because when you think about when you think about all the ways that we got here, it's kind of like, it's hard to, to think about how do we undo it? Because yeah. I spend a lot of time dreaming about what it looks like to have more equality. And right now there's a lot of kind of back and forth around police reform, police abolition. I'm interested to know your take and why you think one would work, why one another wouldn't or why both won't or whatever. So police reform is, is definitely not a step towards reaching that better place, right? Police reform at its absolute best is a way of making the current crisis just a little less deadly and miserable for people. That's the best possible reading of what police reform will do. It accepts all the things that are terrible about America, but says we're just going to try to kill a fewer number of black people each year. Right, right. The problem is, is that even that isn't going to happen. Mm. Right? These reforms don't work, right? So, so if they did work, you still wouldn't get much relief, but they don't actually work. 
So there's no evidence that says that any of these reforms are going to actually make any meaningful difference. They're not going to save it, right? We've had five, six years of police reform since Eric Garner was killed, Tamir Rice was murdered, Mike Brown, right? They're still killing the same number of people every year. Mm. The cops in Minneapolis who killed George Floyd had had implicit bias training, uh-huh. had had de-escalation training, had had mindfulness training. Oh, they had mindfulness too. Okay. Yes, we're wearing body cameras. We're operating under a new use of force policy that said sanctity of life is like job number one. They were operating under a new policy that said they were required to intervene if they saw an officer engaged in misconduct, especially if it threatened someone's sanctity of life. Mm. None of it made any difference. They just stood there and watched that man get choked to death for no damn good reason. Right, right. His life did not matter. Right. And the race of the officers didn't matter. Right. It was a diverse group of officers made no difference. Right. Right. We are not going to get out of this mess by putting more money into police training and technology or by throwing a few cops in jail. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So if and if if what we're really concerned about is these larger issues of racial and economic justice which of course we should be, right? Why on earth do we think reforming the police is gonna advance that mission? Hi, beautiful ones. I am pausing this episode quickly to let you know about a couple of ways that you can work with me. I am a liberation doula, which means that my work surrounds around helping folks to birth their most joyful, liberated lives. What does it look like to be free? What does it look like to practice freedom daily? And what does it look like to orient yourself towards personal and collective liberation? So in order to support people in their liberation, I have two ways to work with me one-on-one. The first is through liberation coaching, which is one-off coaching. You can go onto my website and sign up for a uh, session. It's one hour where we can talk about anything that is pressing in your life or that is uh, coming up for you, questions that you want to answer or something that you want to workshop. It's a great opportunity for just kind of like anything that's coming up and you would like to talk with me about it or workshop it with me, it's a great way to do that. The other option is through the Journey Intensive Coaching Program, which is a three to 12 month coaching intensive where I walk you through my framework for liberation. This framework is something I've been working on for many, many years, and I say often is an extension of the work that my ancestors had worked on for centuries. I have boiled it down to a three-part framework, which is alignment, embodiment, and connection. First, we will walk through what is your dream for your freedom? What is the dream for your life? If you could have a full imagination about what is possible, Um, let's play and be in that space. And then we evaluate your value, see what is working for you, what isn't working for you. And then are you living in alignment to those values? And then we work through what it looks like to be in embodiment of those values, an embodiment of your intuition. 
And then we move into the connection piece, which is all about anti-oppressions and the ways that we live out the systems of oppressions daily through the ways that we talk, the ways that we walk, the choices that we make and things that we support. And how do we undo that? How do we remove those things from our embodied program? Um, and that's what we work through with the coaching intensive, which is a really beautiful opportunity to dig deep into your liberation and to create frameworks and systems for that. So if you're interested in working with me one-on-one, you can do that through the link in the show notes or go to letsgetnaked.com slash coaching. Now let's get back to the episode. Let's focus on what that mission is. So a big part of that mission is saying that government has an obligation to actually improve conditions in historically discriminated against communities. We could think about it as reparations. We could just think about it as basic question of political you know, equity. So where are the functioning schools? Where are the high quality drug treatment services? Where are the baseline mental health services? Where are the after school programs for young people? Where are the supports for families who are in crisis? Well, when we ask those for those things, what we're told is we don't have any money. But when we look at the budget, we see 30, 40, 50% of the money is going to criminalize people in exactly those communities. Mm paying for police, it's paying for jails, it's paying for courts, right? So it's not that there's no money, it's that the money's being used to solve the problems of those communities through criminalization, which just exacerbates the underlying inequalities and does nothing to really revitalize neighborhoods or give people new opportunities. Right. And the motive is, in your opinion? Well, look at the politicians. Look at, look at how they actually operate, right? Those, those city council members who come around and say they're our friends, but, but you can't get a meeting with them because they're busy making their real estate deals, mm-hmm. right? They want to do their deals. They want to engage in transactional politics with a handful of people who they can get votes for from by giving them little favors. They don't really want anyone else to vote. So they have an interest in suppressing the vote, which they all do. And the mayors and the bigger players, right? They want to do their downtown development deals. They want to give their tax breaks to Amazon. And they're getting the big campaign contributions from the real estate interests, from the corporate interests. And so it skewed the whole system. And it's a bipartisan problem, right? This is not about one party or the other. This is across the board. And as a result, no real issues ever get talked about because neither party has any interest in addressing homelessness, in addressing, you know, entrenched racialized poverty, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Obama never talked about any of these things. And neither of the current candidates are talking about any of these things. Mm-mm. So part of, I think, the, the, 
the level of anger and mobilization we've seen over the last several months is this deep frustration about the fact that no one is taking any of this seriously, that neither part, you know, that neither party has a plan that people can get behind. So when that's the case, then we have no other choice but to be in the streets. Right. So then that leads me to my next question. What do you think is the solution? Not, not the solution. What's the path to the solution? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, we have to first expand what we mean when we say politics, right? Mm. We, we've been told over and over again that politics is something you do every four years for the 15 minutes it takes to go vote. I mean, first of all, voting is, it happens every year, but voter participation rates for local elections on non-presidential years is like 20%, you know? Mm -hmm. So, but even then, you know, voting cannot be the only thing that counts as political activity. So we, we kind of have a saying in my house that Thursday night is meeting night. Somebody's going to a meeting, a union meeting, a community meeting, an environmental meeting, some... Now, the, sometimes these meetings are boring. <laughs> sometimes they are frustrating, right? But you just don't have any choice. Right. Right? People with power, they have access to politicians. Right. They right. have access to policymaking. They know what's going on. They spend time because they're able to directly realize a benefit from that. And the rest of us are told to just watch basketball and play video games and to leave it to the professionals, to leave it to the adults to make these decisions for them. And that's not going very well for most people. Mm -mm. So, it's a, so we do have to encourage people to take some responsibility for their political fate. This is something you know I talk, with, uh, talk about with my students a lot many of whom are immigrants or the children of immigrants who, who don't feel connected to political processes, who feel alienated or estranged from American society. And I'm just like, do you want to be the subject of political power? You know, do you want to be subject or do you want to be an actual actor in this play? Right? How, how, what kind of life do you want for yourself? Someone who just is buffeted by forces that you don't understand and have no control over? Or do you want to get in the game and have some say about the direction of your life? And that's, that's the challenge for people. It's scary and, and involves a lot of you know, boring and frustrating work, but there's really, I don't see any other alternative. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's interesting because in the wake of the most recent um, state-sanctioned state violence, I noticed on social media, because I spend way too much time there, it felt, <laughs> it felt like- Don't we all, don't we all. Right, right. Um, it felt like for some people, the getting out in the streets was like, because like there was like this whole kind of conversation around these influencers that are out here with their makeup on and they got their whole thing doing it for the gram being on social media and i think there's something especially as americans we have we we only enjoy what's sexy 
whatever looks tantalizing, whatever's going to get the likes on the picture and going down to a committee meeting ain't sexy. There's nothing sexy about it. Although, you know, it, it is, it is hard work and it, and it can be boring and frustrating, but it is also a way to build community. Mm. You know, it's a way to get offline, you know, and we all say that that's what we want, that we don't want our lives dominated by social media, that we're tired of watching TikTok videos. Right, right. Well, okay, then let's, let's do it. Let, and, and it's, again, it's, it's scary and unfamiliar territory for a lot of people, but you just, and you can't go just once, you have to keep going so that it becomes familiar and so that people see you and then you can become part of this, the team, part of the scene. And look, we're in a moment. There are a lot of things to plug into right now. Yeah. You know, there's a lot going on in a lot of places, small towns, rural areas, there's stuff happening you know, and it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be exactly your politics, you know, and you just, but you just have to, to, to cast that stone and see, and see what ripples come from it. I want to talk about race for a second and specifically, um, I think it's really, I find it really interesting and encouraging when I hear white folks that are doing the work of racial justice, speaking to how to move in this space in a respectful way. And so I'd be interested to know for those that are afraid to enter into this space and to really get their hands dirty, because I'm finding that there's been a huge push and an incredible increase of the amount of white folks that are saying Black Lives Matter in this go around in comparison to Trayvon Martin, in comparison to the beginning of the movement, a huge increase, which you can't, you know, but um, a lot of folks, myself included, are calling for deeper involvement, more than just talking to your family. But what I'm realizing is there's a deep fear there's a, there's a fear of beginning too involved, afraid of saying the wrong thing, afraid of saying the whatever, whatever it may be. And I'm interested to know from your perspective as someone who's been, who's literally grew up in this work, how do you navigate some of that? Well, I wish I, I had all the answers and, and my situation maybe isn't completely useful because I have been in this space for so long. So there are a lot of ways in which I kind of get a pass, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, I think the thing is, you know, you have to start by doing the work mm. in some setting, right? You can't start by uh, making pronouncements, issuing Mm -hmm. manifestos, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. thinking you've got it all figured out, right? You have to find the people who are doing work and work, work involves talking to people who you don't already know, who don't already agree with you. You know, that's like organizing 101. And I I have a background in both community organizing and labor organizing. And so, and I think that was part of how I was able to get to where I'm at. 
is that these were never just abstract academic questions for me. These were questions that came out of the work. So, um, so, so I started working on homelessness issues in California in the late 80s and early 90s. And I was on the street talking to people, working with people, mm-hmm. you know? And so the, the issues about police harassment and abuse were not abstract. I watched it happen in front of me. I was friends with people who were the victims of this. Right. And this, you know, helped develop my own analysis, but it also allowed me to share a certain kind of language and understanding with communities of people who were directly affected in a more ongoing way. Right. So yeah. I never tried to claim that I personally had the same experiences, but my understanding of the problem was, was shaped by a deep connection to people who were experiencing that. Yeah. So, so if you're in the work, then your experiences are going to be more authentic and that's going to tend to lead to an ability to make a closer connection to people, right? Who are involved in this work for survival, you know? Or, or for, for larger, you know, issues. Yeah. It's a, it is, it can be a minefield. And I think the thing is to, is to come at it from a, a position of, of some humility, right? Just, and even when you're doing the work, I mean, I'm learning every day and I have to be held accountable too. And I, I have the people that I try to be in constant communication with you know, so that I'm lifting up the right stuff and I'm in sync with what other people are trying to do. And, and that, you know, mostly what I've been doing the last few years is trying to support organizing using this platform that I have because of the privilege that I have to write a book, to do long form research, you know, to develop a certain set of communication skills and and connections to institutions, to media, et cetera. So, you know, people in St. Louis are trying to close a jail down and they're trying to create some excitement and get some media coverage. So they're like, can you come to St. Louis? And I'm like, I'll be on the next flight, you know, whatever. That's, so I'm not going around telling movements what to do I'm supporting movements and what they're trying to do to the extent that, that we're basically in sync. And since everyone can easily find out what my point of view is, there's usually not a lot of confusion about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's perfect. I think, you know, there's a lot of confusions around, um, you know, how to the balance between doing your own work, not relying on people of color or oppressed groups to like educate you or tell you what you need to do, but at the same time, lifting up the voices of those that have not, do not have the same privilege. And I think the, the white folks that I see do this allyship stuff very masterfully. It's taken plenty of years. It made a lot, they made a lot of mistakes, but there is a beautiful balance between the two that I find 
occurs. And I think what you say about actually having the experience of being on the street with folks and creating actual connection and relationship is the cornerstone to real allyship in a lot of ways. So I really appreciate that perspective. Um, I want to ask my last question here so I can get you out to get you to dinner with your kids. Um, this was a great, short, sweet, but impactful conversation. Um, where, before I ask my last question, how can people support your work? How can people find you? All of that. Right. Well, I mean, I, it's not so much that my work needs to be supported, but I think I am a hub in this movement, a hub of information and organizing. So, you know, people can follow me on Twitter at a Vitale, A-V-I-T-A-L-E. Uh, and, you know, I, people can, can read my stuff, but, but the, the Twitter thread is a great way to see what a lot of people in the movement are talking about and what are the interesting developments, both in terms of research and in terms of organizing and, uh, you know, I'm connected to a lot of organizations around the country. So that's, uh, that's what kind of animates that work. Yeah. Awesome. 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 Um, so my last question is what is lighting you up these days? Yeah. I mean, it's hard. We're in such a hard time. It's hard to feel super excited. And it's especially because the, this work is rooted in people's suffering. So it's like, I live in this strange thing where, you know, when people get killed by police, I get more attention, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's, it's like in a, in a, it's obviously at one level, it's gratifying to get attention for one's life's work. You know, I've been yeah. doing this work a long time. But it's also a kind of burden and, and an obligation to, to the movement and to be mindful, right, of those obligations as I sit on this ele elevated platform that I'm on. Uh, trying to make the most of the good weather we've had with my kids and have as much outdoor time and play basketball and soccer and tennis and, you know, bicycle. And that's uh, where I don't have to think about these yeah. things uh, at least for a short period of time. So the kids are, are super essential um, as frustrating as kids can be right They're They're also, <laughs> Uh, keep me grounded and and full of joy too. I love that. Love that. Well, thank you so much, Alex, for coming on. It was a pleasure to talk to you. You bet, Martisa. Let's let's talk again sometime soon. So, what you think? It's probably like the shortest episode or interview that I've had on the podcast yet, but it was still really packed with information and ways that we can shift our brains and our society in ways that feels more pleasurable for all of us. Um, so I hope this episode inspires you to do something whatever is in your wheelhouse to be able to do for you to do it um 
yeah, and that's it. I'm so grateful to have had this conversation with Alex Vitali, and I'm grateful to be able to share it with you. And I'm grateful for all your listening and for your supporting, your sharing. Um, so please continue to do that. I'm so grateful. I will see you next week.